Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hello. Hello. Ian Cinnamon, that's not real. <laughs> it is. <laughs> You'll never forget it, but it's real, believe it or not. Eric, I feel like you need to change your name now. We we gotta get uh we gotta get something more fun. Yeah, exactly. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories Web3 edition. I'm here today joined by my co-host Ian Cinnamon and very special guests JD Ross and Justin Blau of Royal. JD, Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Awesome. So let's start with the the origin of, of Royal, because Justin, I remember we were on a call a bit over a year ago and you were saying, hey, you know, I'm, you know, JD is my, my college best friend. You know, I'm exploring this, this idea with him. Like, do you think it could happen? And I was like, well, JD's already been, you know, had a big success. Like, does he have another one in him? Is he really going to go for it? <laughs> and, and you guys made it happen. So so talk about the origin of, of when you both decided and, and, and you, Justin, obviously had a very successful music career and you, you pioneer in the NFT space as well. Talk, talk about when you had the moment of like, I'm going to dedicate the next decade of my life to this, if not more. Yeah, I think there were a couple of moments where in sequence that made it feel almost almost like an obligation, like a like a higher calling to, to kind of work on Royal. And the first was a conversation that I had with Fred Erzin, who I'd been friends with for five years and had kind of been pitching similar ideas. Um, adjacent to Royal to for those five years, just how how I felt distributed ledger tech would help and fix the music business. And so that was kind of a combo that we were having for a while. And then Keith Raboy on, on JD's side, who, who JD had introduced me to also kind of five, six years ago, had been super helpful to me in a previous iteration of my kind of blockchain music exp- exploration, a project that I called Our Music Festival that I that I tried to kind of build in 2017, 2018 through the bear market. So I've kind of always had this obsession with how crypto technology can can kind of benefit musicians and benefit the music business. And as someone who hasn't really been a founder in the past, building a company was something that felt really foreign to me. And I knew that building this particular company would be really difficult. And so I had just gotten off a phone call with our mutual friend from college, um, JD and I's mutual friend from college, Alex Plutzer, who was asking me whether or not he should go join Coinbase's NFT team from Instagram. And that gave me the idea to call JD again. Like I'd been calling JD for advice about a bunch of stuff related. And I was like, JD, you want to do this thing? You want to like maybe start this company with me? And JD's response was, maybe, yeah, give me a week. <laughs> and we and we talked about, we talked about in that moment, um, that was like the first part of the conversation. And the second part of the conversation was, similar ideas to Royal that JD had. I mean, if not the same idea, just within a different context of, you know, being able to invest in any talent early on and and how powerful that might be for society. And so we really shared that vision, regardless of music being the focus today. And we just riffed on it for hours. And then I kind of waited for him to call me back and say, yes, it was like (laughs) proposed, like, like, will you be my girlfriend kind of a thing? It was awesome. I love being his girlfriend. Talk about it from your perspective, JD. No, I, I think Justin covers it well. I think what really shifted it for me was when, or there's, there's this definitely narrative in the market that streaming doesn't pay artists, that they can't get paid on streaming. And, and Justin 
convince me that's not true, right? Like he's seen as, as these streaming, maybe it was true 10 years ago. It was definitely true 10 years ago, right? right. As piracy came in and just decimated the music industry and the creative industries, there's a huge fall off in the amount of money that an artist can make from doing anything besides touring. But now you have, you know, basically these, these global streaming platforms like Spotify, YouTube, Apple music, and even on the, you know, on other side, you have it on like Netflix, you have, you know, all these subscription platforms that generate real revenue for artists. And Justin, maybe you can talk to that, but, you know, he was telling me about how he'd seen his streaming revenues grow from basically nothing to a meaningful portion of his, of his income, you know, 10, hundred X over seven, eight years. And I was like, wow, this is like, this is real. And so, um, you know, Justin's like, get, got, you know, Justin, we're, we're both a little bit left brain, right brain. Justin obviously is far like spikes on all the artists and creative side, but as a business, I, it just shocked me. I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me there are artists who are doing like 10 million streams a year who are making, you know, $35,000 and that's not nearly enough to survive on. Right. That's like, you're okay, great. Now you're like an accountant at Deloitte and an artist versus the other way around. But like, that's because you basically have a reverse mortgage. It's like the opposite of, you know, take this real estate wording, wording here. You're getting like a mortgage payment instead of the house. Um, $35,000 a year is not enough to run an artist career on, but $35,000 a year is worth, you know, $300,000, $400,000. And to a fan, maybe a lot more, right? That's just the intrinsic value. The emotional value layered on top of that is huge. And if an, if an artist can create an album that's worth that every year, that you're t- you can afford a tour, you can afford putting together future albums, you can it changes the entire dynamics of the music industry with that kind of financial lever. Now, historically, those levers exist, but they only exist for the biggest artists. They exist for like the Bruce Springsteens of the world. They exist for the Justin Timberlakes who supposedly sold his you know rights for hundred million dollars. They don't exist for that person in the coffee shop who's trying to make it, um, even though that person may have a hundred or a thousand fans willing to invest in them excited to make that bet and who might be the next Billie Eilish. And so that got me so excited. Uh, and that's how we kind of kicked it off with Royal. Yeah. And, and just to quick, quick note on that, I think it, you know, having studied finance in college and, and gone through being an independent artist since 2015 is when I decided to like switch and just own everything myself. I didn't necessarily know that streaming income was going to grow as much as it did. But as JD said, it was, you know, somewhere between 60, 70 X between like 2015 year over year to 2019, 2020. And that's because, you know, you had this system that was sort of rigged where everyone would just steal stuff. And now it was just easier to pay for a subscription to get access to everything. And the issue was that there's this massive narrative violation that that we want to push forward, which is that artists don't get paid. They do. Um, And there are lots of small artists that have maintained their independence and stream maybe not 10 million a year because that's low, but like artists do stream 20, 30, 40 million a year that can survive because they chose to remain independent. And those stories never really made their way to the media narrative. It was always artists are getting screwed. And what people forget is it's not the streaming platforms that screw over artists. It's all the people in between that are taking a 20% cut, a 30% cut, a 5% cut for business management, a 5% cut for legal representation. And like all of these things, and then if there's a duo, the artists are splitting it. And it's like, things just keep getting split down, 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 down until the pie is just too small for anything to be left. And what we wanted to do is demonstrate that that's not always the case. Yeah, that's fascinating. Two big ideas I want to put on the table that I want to hear your responses to. One is that from an outsider view, my view of the kind of record label industry is that they're like, 
it's it's like venture capital, but if if VCs owned like you know eighty percent or ninety, like you know, it's sort of like mixed. Instead of VCs owning twenty percent, they they own you know close to you know they own most of it, and and then also there's lots of middlemen as you, as you kind of alluded to. And my understanding is that companies like United Masters tried to kind of flip this in terms of, you know, if record labels provide capital and distribution, you know, on the internet, you need distribution and, and maybe there are other ways to get capital. But I, I, my understanding is that artists just kind of like getting that big fat lump sum up front and didn't want this more longer term aligned model. So that's sort of one thing I want to get your take on is sort of how this changes on the record label side. The other thing is, is more just the music industry at large. My understanding talking to Chris Dixon and folks is like, if you compare video games to music, video games used to cost, um, you know, they, they used to charge money for the game. And my understanding is that they, they moved more to towards like a free to play model with right. a virtual goods economy that, um, that made the industry significantly bigger and it's significantly bigger than music, but music should be, you know, just as big, if not bigger than video games, like the, the amount of passion that people have for their favorite artists. Like if I think about my favorite artists and how much money I've paid them, it's not even close to how much value they've created in my life. And so what do you think? I'm curious to hear how Royal plans to significantly increase the, the size of the music, music industry. The, the thing with labels is labels do provide services that are valuable to artists. The question is, you know, at Royal, we believe that there are just lots of bad deals. Not every deal is bad. There are just lots of them. And it depends on really the, the decisions that a manager makes on behalf of an artist, because managers are incentivized to sign these deals as much as artists are to get this upfront capital because managers will typically commission it between 15 and 20% upfront, whatever the advance is. And so they're incentivized to make these big deals happen and to pocket the money. Um, that doesn't, again, mean that all these managers are malicious. In fact, many of them are great, but, but the incentives are misaligned in general, right? And so the artist, on the other hand, wants to quit their day job and anywhere between $100,000 and a couple million dollars to give up a lot of whatever they do in the future for the promise of fame and distribution, which is ultimately most artists don't care about money insofar as like being super rich. I mean, it depends on the genre. Um, but a lot of artists mostly do care about getting their music out there and having people hear it. Right. And so when they're promised a higher potential for that, they're very likely to sign the dotted line because what are they going to do if they don't sign that dotted line? Right. Well, in the past, there wasn't, an, there wasn't really any alternative. Um, in my kind of growth as an artist, sandwiches between when there was the possibility of doing it on your own and when you really didn't have another option. And so around 2015, you saw a lot of services like AWOL, which stands for Artists Without a Label, um, and a lot of distribution like platforms rise that just charge you a lower fee to get your music to all the platforms and do a little bit of marketing for you. So not a full service label deal, um, but if you're an artist that's producing all your own content, like myself, where I'm sourcing a lot of my own vocals, I'm not, you know, leveraging an A&R to make my own records. Um, in most cases, in some cases, there have been people who help, but never in a formal label process. When you've got this method that I had, I get to maintain ownership and control of all of it. And I pay a 10% fee, which is still really high, a 10% fee for distributing it to Spotify, Apple Music, et cetera. So again, that's not to say that labels are invaluable to some artists. It's just that as the technology has improved, the barrier to entry for making music has lowered. I mean, you used to need to rent a studio for thousands of dollars to get high quality audio. Now it's all on your laptop. You've got TikTok, you've got Instagram. At the time that I started my career, it was with Facebook and YouTube before they throttled back distribution. Like everyone who liked your Facebook page would see what you posted. So I kind of hit it at a very lucky time um, with, within like internet music culture. But 
But what's really interesting is these new artists, these younger artists, they have all of these tools that they didn't have before. And so many more of them are, are likely to choose an independent route or a semi-independent route. In, so long as they understand they can actually make a bit of money if they succeed. And there are a couple of artists today that I'm friends with that have actually leveraged Royal who've kind of proven this to be true. Um, Verite and Ali are two who are smaller known artists, but have had success with stream counts. And so the idea that we have is, you know, leveraging some of these artists' stories to shift the narrative. Um, so I guess your first question was, yeah, like labels being the VC model, true. In the label's defense, they kind of take on a little more risk in that if anything happens to that one individual or that those few individuals that are artists, it's not like there's a giant team of people and you could rotate, you know, members in and out, although that is kind of how, how South Korea does it. Um, uh, and maybe their business model is the best business model, but it, 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 like record labels are very much VCs for musicians with way more, way crazier terms. So that was, that was the answer to your first question. I guess part two of that is why not now make all fans like, why can't fans serve very similar function to a record label, right? Um, they can provide capital at mass and their marketing efforts could be substantial, especially when they have aligned incentives. So that's a really exciting thing that we, we choose to, and, and are excited to unlock at Royal. But there was a second part of your question. It's the video game one. Yeah. How do we get, make the music industry bigger? Oh, emotional value. The simplest way to understand Royal, it's a way for anyone to invest in music and participate in the income generated by it. And we started this company fueled by the belief that the next era of music and then really the next era of culture is going to shift power and control to artists and the people who believe in them, right? And that's a, that is a, just to go back to the record level before we move forward. I, I think that's really important for two reasons. One, historically, the people who have been the funding sources have not been the people who have that emotional resonance with the artist. Maybe yeah, sure there are people in record labels who really care about artists, but that's not what keeps them in business. For them, it's a it's a there's a math equation that runs the runs the company. In the next generation of this industry, next era of this industry, it's different, right? Your your investment returns are not just going to be purely financial; they're also going to be emotional, right? Like, what value do you put on being able to connect with your favorite artist? What value do you put on that proximity, on being in that world? And that's, that's huge, right? And so I think the video game analogy here is like, how do you take people who are sort of the super fans of these video games and monetize them to a much higher degree? Or like same with like airlines or anything else, right? How do you do that with, with the fan artist connection? How do you take the person who's that, who is the Prince super fan, who is like, you know, paying for the fan club and go, actually, you can go backstage to Prince if you're the diamond tier, you know, fan. And what's cool about this with music versus video games and others is that, if you're an early fan, being a diamond tier fan is a hell of a lot cheaper. Right now, as an artist gets bigger, things get worse for you as a fan, right? Like if you discovered a small artist, loved them, and then they became a superstar, all of a sudden you can't go see them. Their tickets are selling it instantly. They're not, you know, there's 10,000 people in the arena instead of the 200 that were there when you saw them play at, you know, Stubbs or whatever. Like it's a completely different experience and it's a worse experience for you. And yeah, just throwing this in there, being early to an artist and sharing that artist with your friends is the is the highest weighted value that you can add to an artist's career and you get nothing in return, right? Yeah. So if you're really early and you tell 10 friends, that's more meaningful than later on when that artist is huge. And I was like, oh, have you heard of Bad Bunny? Of course you have. But if I said that to you, you know, three years ago, four years ago, it would have been way more value add, so to speak, marginally. Totally. And so how do you make this fan 
artist relationship, more of a partnership, or at least enable it to be where people can bet on their music taste, can come in and say, I found them when I knew them when, and have that be a better experience as they succeed. That's what we're trying to create. And so I think that plays to like, yes, there's going to be a lot more value there because later on when they are loved by everyone, there is going to be that fan who's happy to drop like, you know, a million dollars on them. But early on, that only cost a couple hundred to have the same experience and keep it. And, and I think there's like just two other quick piggybacking points there is historically fans have never been able to participate in a musician's success. And there's a very specific reason for that. Um, music has only been consumed. It has never been participated in by a fan. So there's four ways that fans consume anything related to music. Um, subscription, license on iTunes for 99 cents, um, merch or ticket to see a live performance. Those are all single way consumption mechanisms where the artist is no longer involved after those things are purchased for the most part, right? If you own a piece of a song, now that relationship with the artist is firmed theoretically forever. The same way all the singers on my songs um, are always, my relationship with them is kind of firm forever because these songs will exist forever. And I, you know, depending on the success of these songs, they are owed money. And in many cases, some of these artists helped me build my career particularly Bright Lights is an amazing writer who was the singer on one of my big breakout records in 2014. Like we're tied for life. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I think that idea of making a fan a partner is just so powerful on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, beyond this kind of like consumption layer piece, you have the data layer where all of these other music services don't share who your fans are when you're an artist. So I may have done over a billion streams ac across platforms and I may have done, you know, probably close to a million ticket sales in my life. And I have zero information on who those people are. If those people own tokens in wallets that represent ownership of my music, it's on chain. I could see it. I might not know their identity, but I can at least communicate and send them things and give them access to exclusive content and unlock other variables, right? And so the idea of transparent data between artists and fans, and when you're a fan, you can see who else owns my stuff too. It's not just it's not just on my end. It's it's communal. Right. And so these are all kind of the powerful principles on why, you know, we talk about investing in music, but like why Web3, there are all these variables that that make it so compelling from composability and transparency and all these other other forces. And when you think about how you're essentially removing not just this middle layer, but this massive middle layer that might have taken 80 or 90 percent of the total value. How do you see that middle layer reacting to what you're doing? And over time, how do you think that's going to evolve? Do you think they're going to want to play nice and say, let's work with you? How do we work with Royal? Or is so it like, you know, they've been playing pretty nice, I have to say, because, and here's why I think they're playing nice. In the past, any disruption of music has specifically focused on activities that would require licensing and payments for utilizing rights or copyrights in some way, shape, or form. We don't really do that. What we do is we let whatever artist owns music, sell the ownership that they maintain, regardless of whatever deals they have. Now, if an artist is not recouped, like let's say a label sends an artist $2 million and that artist has to pay that back, right? It's kind of difficult to sell those assets to fans because it might take a while. There's not as much transparency in accounting, et cetera. Um, but in the event that an artist is independent and is recouped, whoever they are, they could sell whatever they want. It's like Ryan Tedder sells his catalog for hundreds of millions of dollars, doesn't have to get permission from all the other people who you know, performed or wrote on those records. He just sells whatever he owns, right? And so that's really, really powerful. And I think that's what a lot of 
labels and publishing companies are seeing with Royal is they want to play nice because they want to figure out how to leverage their relationships and their connections to unlock this value. It's a bit different than the music consumption layer, which is kind of what what forced Spotify's hand on a couple of decisions, right? Um, there isn't much anyone can do when you're just selling rights and art versus leveraging the audio. So, so we have seen people play nice. And, and I think, in fact, I actually think they're excited because to a lot of these middlemen, if the, if you grow the pie and they're taking less of the pie, but the pie grows bigger than what they were taking previously, they're, they're happy. Right. Um, so if we, if we can continue to show that we're just growing the pie exponentially related to the split difference that some of these legacy actors have, I have a feeling they'll, they'll continue to like us for a little while. We are jumping in to the middle of a wave that's already happening, right? The percentage of independent music that in, as market share continues to grow, it's now over 30% and rising. And that has nothing to do with Royal. It has everything to do with where is the power coming from? The power used to come from the companies that would physically print you know, hundreds of thousands of records or CDs and distribute them to thousands of stores around the entire world and maintain relationships with radio stations around the entire world and put out a poster. Like that was a lot of work. Oh man, and, I have stories about that. I used to go and like like make relationships with radio. Like that was the thing you had to like. If you're an artist, you would go and play free shows for the biggest radio station in a, in a state. Right, and that's how you got <laughs> distribution. And like literally everything I just described is irrelevant. Like it is completely and totally irrelevant today. What makes an artist succeed today is the legwork they put into building their community uh, in person, on TikTok, on Instagram what playlists they get landed on algorithmically on Spotify. Like that's what drives that. So unless you're a top, literally like 25 artist in the world, the labels value add to you is becoming a lot more financial. And if the label is providing you finance, then is a label going to be the best in class, the best source of financing? I think the answer that they see and we see is no, it's not because they have, they have hurdle rates. They have all these things. Same thing with private equity, right? As the value of this music has gotten higher, the first people to recognize that are the sophisticated, smart sort of investors who are seeing high returns and coming in and putting that money in. Now, retail investors, people who actually value this music, who really see it, are going to get access. And that's going to reshape the financing piece of that. I think what ends up happening is the middlemen who were takers are going to get squeezed out. And the ones who are value add, the labels who are doing that work and who are creating deals that really benefit the artist are going to stay in power and really succeed. Taylor Swift owns her masters, but she's still signed with the label because that label provides a tremendous amount of services to her. But, and I think like even in my case, you know, I, I still, there are lots of service providers that add a lot of value for musicians. It's just that the take rates have been unfair and, and there will be some race to the bottom in that regard. Someone could hear this and say, Hey, this is where music's going. I totally understand it. Wait, wh- why did, why is this on the blockchain or wh- what does web three enable here? You alluded to some of the elements earlier, Justin. Why don't you guys unpack uh, the, the different dimensions by which uh, Web3 kind of unlocks here? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start. I'm sure JD has some stuff to add because one of the reasons why I was really excited to partner with JD on this is he brings he brings a very practical perspective and you know lengthy history of building tech companies. Um, and I've kind of been a little bit deep in deep in crypto rabbit holes for eight years, and so we we often find balance in our, in our perspectives because, you know, a lot of, you know, legacy Silicon Valley thinks crypto isn't necessary to do a lot of things, which 
I agree. <laughs> you know, for the most part, I think most people apply this this framework because it's cool, like the blockchain for this and the blockchain for that and the blockchain for real estate and blah 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 blah. But there are a couple of like very very specific reasons why having these assets live on an immutable distributed ledger benefits both artists and fans. And here here are a couple. Number one is is transparent data, right? Like the second a platform gates data from an artist. Um, and, and again, like Royal still has some of this now built in because we do have like a web two login with email password to make it really easy for people to understand what we're doing. But in the future, you know, an artist should be able to directly connect with whoever owns their stuff and doing that without a, without a centralized database, doing it on chain is probably a better and cleaner idea. Now this stuff doesn't work perfectly yet, but in the future, I love the idea of being able to ping every wallet address that has ever touched one of my assets because it's on chain and it's there and I can see it and no one can take that from me. Right. So that data layer is probably the number one reason why I've always been excited about blockchain tech in general. And as it applies to music, because that doesn't just apply between fans and artists, it can apply to accounting transparency for royalty payments down the line. When these distributors do kind of move their services to on-chain rails, like all of these variables will start to connect in really interesting ways in the spirit of transparency and open data. So I, I would say like, that's, Definitely variable one that makes it extremely necessary in my head to build this on chain. Two, I would say is liquidity in that a big problem with music rights markets today is they've only really been accessible to private equity and hedge funds and labels, right? So when you kind of get granular with what retail can own, you'll create this giant liquidity push. And that that really can only happen, I, I would say, effectively in, in a if if an NFT is is the base unit of measure for what these assets look like, excuse me, look like. And there's a really interesting thing we talked about when we started the company is like, why not just do like shares of songs with a fungible token? And it's because you you can't like, are you going to show your friend that you own like 500 shares of this song and 700 of this? Like, how is that meaningful to the other person? It doesn't quite hold or resonate the same way as like showing them the collection of music that you own in the form of artwork, right? It's because music is art. So on the other hand, like th this like unit liquidity thing matters a lot on chain and like having these things be freely tradable, also letting fans create their own indexes of songs, right? Like they can create a collection of songs. And then they, if, you know, theoretically, if they're outside of the US, they can fractionalize their collection of songs and sell it to other people. Like, you know, these are things that we, we don't endorse at Royal, but things that might happen in the future that we're excited about. And then finally, you know, in, in the spirit of, everything that happens on chain, it, I, I would say it's, it's, it's the payments. It's showing people where things are, where money moves. And that's something that like, isn't going to happen right away. Like a lot of people have said in the past, oh, let's just move, move all DRM, uh, you know, digital rights management on chain. Okay. Like you have to get the buy-in of everybody to do that. It's, it's a really big task, but if you do it little by little, right. And you do like artist by artist who are representing their rights in, in a, in a kind of transparent way, you slowly show the world that this is just a better way. And I, I like to use the Uber analogy here where like you start out with black cars because if you put a bunch of Uber X's on the street and no one's ever gotten in a car with a stranger before, that would feel kind of weird, right? And so you kind of have to build into it instead of expecting all of this to just happen overnight. And that's kind of how we're thinking about it. You know, as somebody who hasn't been paid for two years for a song that generated quite a bit of money because they like misspelled a letter in my email, <laughs> you know, it's like stuff like that won't happen anymore. Um, and, and we're excited about that future. But JD, is there any anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think of us as a like kind of web 2.5 company, right? Like someone who 
like we use Amazon Web Services and we use the Polygon blockchain. And the reason we use the Polygon blockchain to and have these NFTs, they, we think that they enable the experience that we believe is best for customers, for customers, for us, our artists, fans, collectors, like that group should see real tangible benefits by doing this. For me, there's two, there's two main benefits. The first is that when I say you own something, you really own it. Like if Royal gets sold to Microsoft and they shut us down, uh, or you know, we disappear, or Justin and I die in a plane crash or something, like hopefully not, th- these they should still work, right? The, the, you, the songs you own should still pay you. The artists should still be able to, you know, the DSPs, whoever it might be, should be able to still pay out to these contracts and you should still get what you're owed. It shouldn't rely on Royal. That's important, I think, both ethically and also from a business point of view, right? This is not reliant on us. We are a, we are a technology service provider. We are not trying to be a like broker dealer or like money transmitter. Like that's just not what we want to do. And so it enables us to build products faster, go to market faster, iterate faster, and make promises that I think other platforms can't make. To, to JD's point, like one of the biggest questions we get is like, what if an artist doesn't pay? And I, I kind of I kind of laugh because I know I do a way better job of paying my side artists than let's call them, you know, majors paying me. Like it doesn't take me two years to pay the people I owe money to, but it actually takes a major a lot longer. So I, I just always laugh when we get that question. It's just, it's, but, but it's a question we get a lot. It's like, how do you know an artist is going to make a payment? Well, it's like, there's a legal agreement, buddy. Um, and if they don't, they will get in trouble. And there's like legal grounds. There's like true legal grounds to, to attack. But, you know, I always like to bring up that, that these are things that exist in every single business. And I think people just aren't used to the idea of an artist making a payment for some reason, or they think artists are, resp- are responsible to, or et cetera. Your, your stance on why Web3 is enabling this, I think is, is very clear. But to flip it around, I'm curious about the downside implications of using Web3 for this. So one obvious thing I think that comes to mind is the speculation-driven nature of Web3 and the volatility of, you know, whether you're building on Polygon or Ethereum or any of these different tokens, you know, I think it's very smart how you're starting with kind of the Web 2.5 model of saying, okay, here's the dollar amount, pay with credit card or with crypto. Once it moves over to an NFT and it's tradable on OpenSea and, you know, people can transact how they want, from an artist perspective, there's massive price fluctuations, right? Like the cost of wow. one of their NFTs effectively got cut in half in theory. So how do you, how do you, yeah, oh. go ahead. How do you think about that? So we love that question. Um, we think that what we're doing is extremely unique and that no one else is doing it today because there is a protection on that vol. It is the fact that there's intrinsic value to these assets. So in the event, let's say, and, and JD and I talk about this all the time, we do a drop with Big Boy and a diamond token represents a higher level of ownership of the streaming recording rights to the song. Let's say we sold it, and I don't I don't remember the exact price, but let's say we sold it for five, and now it's trading at twenty five hundred. Someone smart will go and buy up all those tokens because it's an ARB opportunity. Why? Because the yield at twenty five hundred is extremely high. Remember that token that token pays you. So um, this isn't necessarily true in the past of all royal assets because we did a lot of experiments. But moving forward, we have a target annualized yield rate, and again, it's you know based on historical modeling a target annualized real yield rate of at minimum 6% for these assets. So as these prices drop, the yields go up and someone smart's probably going to go and buy them up. That doesn't exist in the case of any other, and mark my words, at least most, I don't know. I don't know what other stuff is being built out there, but the, most of the stuff that's out there 
doesn't have that intrinsic value characteristic where if price drops, someone smart has an ARB opportunity to come and eat it up and get higher yield on their initial payment. And so that's probably what's kept our assets afloat for the time that they've existed. There's very low percentage listed on the market and they, they all trade for the most part with the exception of, of like one or two, uh, well above the original primary price of the asset. So there is, as you said, a lot of potential for upside volatility where like people just speculate and pump it. On the downside, we believe there's a bit of protection because at some point there is a real yield. And when that yield you know, approaches 10%, it just becomes an interesting thing for everyone. Yep. I, th- I think like this is why also we haven't, you know, we're building a lot of stuff right now at Royal that I'm not ready to fully announce, but you shouldn't need to know anything about crypto at all. Well, you, you should need to know enough about as much about crypto to use Royal as you would need to know about crypto to use like Robinhood, right? Or, you know, Coinbase. or GOAT, right? Like, and if you do know a lot about crypto, it should enhance your experience, right? It should enable you to do things like, um, you know, transfer your ownership to your MetaMask wallet or, and then go off into DeFi land and do whatever you need to do or want to do, like composability and all the other benefits of crypto. But in order to participate in the basic part of, I own music alongside in partnership with the artists that I care about, you shouldn't need to know anything. You should be able to have a credit card, uh, a bank account and be able to good, and be good to go. And we should enable that experience of what we build to buy, sell, earn royalties, uh, use the extras, like claiming those concert tickets or claiming that digital good or whatever it might be, the merch, the unique merch, like all of that should work natively in a way that works as easily as a web two product while using Web3 technologies to make that possible. And the reason why we care so much about that is because the entire ecosystem of NFT users is sub 2 million today. There's less than 2 million people playing with this stuff. And it's our job to bring it to 100 million plus. Wow. Love that. To to, to zoom out back into how the music industry works today in terms of like where the dollars flow. Again, I'm a bit of an outsider, so feel free to edit this. But my understanding is that there's the record labels, there's like Live Nation and, and tour the touring business. There's you know Spotify and and all the streaming you know competitors and and then you know other you know players along the way that take money at kind of different places of the of the value chain. In a decade, let's say you know Royal is is immensely successful um, and changes the music industry alongside you know other players that, that come in. How do you think the music industry evolves? Like, are the are the labels still as powerful as as, as they were? Are there are does it like what in the music industry becomes radically different? I think it's labels choice, right? I, I think that like what's what's happened with labels is, is so fascinating where all of these music rights were basically worthless 10 years ago because no one was buying physical CDs. People were barely using iTunes. Everyone was stealing music. And these labels were struggling to survive to figure out like how they were going to monetize this, these rights that they were sitting on from you know both older and newer artists. And the deals were... The deals they could offer artists were extremely low because they didn't know how to recoup. Um, now that streaming has kind of unlocked, and again, it's because it costs you $9.99 to access everything instead of $9.99, which used to be one album, <laughs> right? Like it's, uh, or it's, I think these prices have gone up. So, uh, I think they're a little higher now. Uh, I used to use the $9.99 example all the time, but they're still not that high. So the, the most susceptible to change, I think, is I wouldn't say labels, I would say deal structure. Like the deal structure is going to be forced to be more competitive. And I've heard, and I'm not, I have not been in, in tech VC land for very long, but I've heard the same is true for, you know, the evolution of fundraising and, and capital 
in, in tech where like in the beginning it was very, very aggressive. And as more players came, came to bat, um, things got way more competitive in favor of, of a founder. Um, and I've heard that kind of story. And I think music is kind of about to go through that. Um, again, all the, all the big funds still exist, right? The same way labels will still exist. They're just going to be forced to be more competitive, which is not great for everyone. So that's, that's kind of on the label side on the, on the live music side, it's, it's totally different. Streaming represents 84% of all recorded music income in the United States, which is pretty high. Um, labels participate in most of that 84% live is typically how a lot of artists make their money unless you're huge, unless you're massive. Um, so my distribution is live, live used to represent about 98% of my income. And now it's, you know, or I should say in the years that I was touring heavily, it dropped to maybe 80 or 90. So like still a large percentage and the capacity of technology to disrupt live music is less insofar as there's not much you can automate outside of like ticketing. You still need like people in the venue Venues are very localized. They have unique audiences. You know, yes, Live Nation owns a lot of venues, but they also don't own a lot of venues. Like, you know, the AEG and Live Nation and all these companies. There's lots of big performance companies, promoters, et cetera. And so I, I don't see tech disrupting the core of live music too much. And beyond that, live music actually does favor the artist for the most part. Artist deals are pretty good in live music world assuming that that artist can sell tickets and the promoter and some of these venues actually do take on quite a big deal of risk when they hire an artist, because there's lots of costs involved. Unlike, you know, they can, a label can amortize all these marketing costs across all their artists with live music. It's not quite like that. So I guess to, to answer your question in short, I, I think that like tech is more likely to disrupt the recorded music business. And by the way, has been as compared to how it will disrupt the live music business. That's well said. I mean, if you were a VC focused solely on music, right? For for the last decade, you know, people have been bearish, or a lot of VCs have been. It's been hard to invest in music. Obviously, people were really excited about Royal, but but besides um, Royal, like, what would be your thesis in terms of where is there opportunity in music? Um, like, is there is there an opportunity for someone who is a streaming player to also sign artists? Like, I've always wondered why. I mean, I, I think there's like politics there for why these streaming services haven't done it. But yes, I mean, there's a lot of like vertical, vertical integration opportunities throughout music, but, but the process is pretty opaque. And, and, I, and I think the reason why VCs have said music is tough to invest in is simple. It's, it's because the rights, music rights architecture is pretty dated and hasn't really changed. And you can't, like it's been proven time and time again that you can't fight it really. It's hard to fight and it's a headache. And you'd have to change like statutes and, and like really dive deeply into like your, your tech company, should you want to disrupt some of these other variables would require like big lifts legally. I mean, and of course, like all companies do, right? But stuff that's just, your, you know, many have tried and many have hit brick walls on. And I think what makes Royal unique here is kind of, you know, a little bit of my perspective, having done a bunch of NFT sales that were collectible, that didn't, that didn't have any intrinsic value at the time. I've assigned some intrinsic value later. Um, a lot of anyone who's bought my stuff actually does own a piece of some of my music now. But the the idea is really, you know, with Royal is to give the artist full control over what they can and can't sell. Um, and, and, and again, Royal is not a music platform. It is a music rights platform. Our tokens do not point to audio files. And that is a very, very, very important distinction. 
um, between what we do and I think what everyone else does. Because we believe, at least JD and I believe, that no one will ever listen to a song in their wallet. It's just not the best user experience. But you might own something that represents your ownership in a song in your wallet, and you can show it to your friends and be really excited about it. But like, there, there are way better services for listening to music than a crypto wallet. When you think about the kind of target artist for Royal, for where you are right now, do you think it falls more on the established side or kind of the up and coming new artists? And kind of the sub question within that is, do you think new artists tend to have a little bit of fear around trying new infrastructure like Royal because maybe they'll have, you know, there'll be some implications of going off the beaten path? Or do you feel like they're almost more inclined to dive into something new? I guess just to repeat the question here, smaller art, are, are smaller artists more scared to kind of experiment? I think the answer is actually the opposite. I think larger artists and their managers are scared because they've heard all this stuff about Web3 that they don't understand. And they've heard about the scams and they've heard about this. And so it actually takes us a way longer time selling um, large artists than small artists. And then I think your former prior question was, you know, what types of artists is Royal focused on? And, and today it's kind of threefold, I would say. It's artists that are leaning into the technology heavily. Um, artists that are large and have massive names and can bring a lot of interest to the platform. And we've seen that with Diplo, with Nas and with the Chainsmokers, all of whom are massive artists and attracted a lot of attention, setting an example for kind of future generations. But the real key for Royal is the up and comer who's really good that nobody knows yet. It's an A&R function. It's, it's if we find an artist that sells music, sells ownership in their music who explodes, the fans will really win and they really will see a return on that purchase. The artist will have a thousand true fans that are a strong army who are like, holy shit, I made money with this artist as they exploded. And the second we do some of those drops slash host some of those artists on the platform um, that succeed, the value proposition will become way more obvious to everyone. So our target is the up and comer who's just really talented, who wants to experiment. I'll make a more macro point. Like the history, and there's a lot of things to talk about here. I think the history of technology is it enables new tools that then empower a new generation to take over because the, the, the rules of the game change. And so the question should be less about like, what about small artists, medium artists, and big artists today? The small artists that are coming up today, they start small, but the big artists of the future are going to embrace this because it's going to be a, it's going to be a wedge to enable them to become big. It's going to give them 10 times the capital to put on a better, bigger tour. It's going to give them 10 times the capital to go on and release the music that they believe in, keep control, and therefore build a fan base that actually believes in them and, and run like that, right? You're seeing this in Latin music actually a lot right now, um, where you have these artists who are doing like half a billion to a billion streams per song, who you've never even heard of in the US who are independent and just absolutely killing it. So if you're saying like, those were the small artists, right? This is a genre that was no one was even talking about a few years ago and is now becoming a massive market share in all of music and they're embracing tools. They're embracing independence. They're embracing new ways of funding. They're embracing new audiences. Uh, and so I think what Royal does is we provide a new tool for those, the next generation of artists who start small to become really big and take over the industry. We'll put a better way of saying it. You know, you guys have been, you know, close friends since college, different, different skill sets, uh, you know, complementary skill sets. 
Um, there are lots of people who have their bud from college who are wondering, hey, should I start a company with with my bud from college? Like, what, what's what's that been like, or what have you learned, or how has your relationship evolved? What, what's one thing you could you could say um, that would shed some light on 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 your relationship? We don't fight that often. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's like I it is a lot. It, it is just it's so nice to have a co-founder who I just can like fully trust and be open with. Where like, you know, I just don't. I don't know a lot of things, right? Like, especially when you're creating something new, no one knows things. And so being able to explore those in a safe way and like, you know, take positions and kind of debate them knowing that there's like, you know, we're not going to come off as stupid or we're like, it's safe to say like, I, I do know this, I don't know this is really helpful. And also just to trust, like, you know, trust each other's superpowers, like not needing to, I don't need to prove anything. Justin, Justin doesn't need to prove anything to me. We're in this together. And that, that's been really, really nice. Like JD has always made me just think a level deeper than the surface about like everything. And so it it's fun. I think like that's, that's the best part is I was really worried before going on this journey because I'd never done anything like this before. And that was part of the reason why I wanted JD to join because I knew he had all this experience and could kind of cure a lot of the blind spots that I had in building something. And then, yeah, and then JD trusts in my knowledge of the music business, which I've spent, you know, 12 years in. And even though I'm not the biggest artist in the world, I've seen a lot of shit. So, you know, I, I think that's what's been really fun. It's like I do. I will say I wake up every morning and I'm freaking stoked, like because we have really great conversations. I, I've gotten to talk to some of my heroes in the music business who believe in what we're doing, who've done this, you know, you know, let, who, who've done similar things that were revolutionary for it 40 years ago, 30 years ago, whoever it is. And it's fun to be able to do it with your best friend, like for sure. I think that was like, Eric, when you were speaking to me about it and I asked you if, if you thought JD would do it and you're like, I don't know, he's kind of already done it. And realistically, like there's no reason for us to be working this hard unless it was fun. And it is, it's so much fun. Yeah. You have to go all in. I mean, you can't, you can't do anything halfway. I think anyone who's built a company will tell you if you're, if you're splitting your focus, you're basically focused on nothing. And so Justin, did, I, I, if someone else can't approach me to do this company, I would have been, you know, like that's going to be, there's like too much work in the, the meta being able to focus on actually building the company and know that the rest of the stuff is taken care of has made this a no brainer for me. Yeah. And also worth mentioning, I, by the end of this year, I will have played 11 shows, which is down from a hundred, a hundred pre COVID. So it's like, I, I, I'm, people are like, how do you balance both? I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't really. I, I haven't made a new song in a while. Um, unfortunately, though, though, there will be some time to do that um, at some point. Um, I, I definitely enjoy the role and enjoy being all in for sure. Love that. Well, well in closing, for, for people who want to learn more, who want to invest in artists, where can you point them? Uh, one of the more royal, what artists you, you, you got upcoming or, or that you've had? Give a last minute plug. Without mentioning new artists that are upcoming because we, we can't announce anything new and exclusive and awesome. Um, if you go to royal.io, you can set up an account. You can go and investigate all the musicians that we've dropped so far, which include Diplo, Ollie, Verite, The Chainsmokers, Nas, um, Tritonal, and many more. And we will have, um, starting in, yeah, I guess next week and following, we'll have a lot more artists on a weekly basis that will be coming to the platform. So you can bet on who you think will be huge in the future. Awesome. We're excited to get to a place where, you know, we're, we're wide open for anyone. Um, you know, we're still in this sort of beta phase. And so it's kind of a fun to be in there on the ground floor, give us feedback uh, and build with us. Love it. Uh, love the vision. Lucky to be a, a small investor. Gr gr grateful. 
on behalf of uh, Ian Cinnamon and Eric Toblerone, this has been a great uh, conversation. J.D. McMuffin <laughs> and Justin Bowberry. <laughs> um, uh, guys, uh, really grateful for, for this conversation. It was an uh, uh, awesome podcast. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. It was great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.